mic check, please. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. I am Dr. Mike Brazier and I'm going to be your host on this episode. We have a first-time guest coming on joining us today and it's going to we're going to visit and talk about uh, sort of a habitat hunting update in the Atlantic Flyway. We get some comments every now and then with people asking us to deliver more content for that part of the world and we're going to try. We're going to do so actually here on this episode. I am happy to welcome in Molly Neese the state waterfowl biologist for South Carolina Department of Natural Resources and a friend and colleague of mine. Molly, it's great to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Mike. appreciate y'all having me today. Yeah, like I said, we do have people chime in and say, hey, don't forget about us over here in the Atlantic Flyway. I'm sure you hear that a lot in your job, you know, like, hey, we we got we have ducks over here. We have duck hunters over here. Ducks Unlimited actually does a lot of work in South Carolina throughout the Atlantic Flyway, uh, honestly. And, and we're trying. We're continuing to do our best here on the on the podcast to get more content from that part of the world. It's it's a bit of a struggle sometimes just with our hectic schedules. And here we are. We've got you lined up. We connected with you last year, I guess, by way of email and wanted to add you in sort of our revolving list of of guests to talk about happenings in different parts of the of the waterfowl landscape south carolina the south atlantic portion of the atlantic flyway is certainly one of those and so we're happy to have you uh, join us here and to start with given that you're a first-time guest we're going to ask you to introduce yourself to our audience tell us a little bit about yourself where you came from and what you do for uh, the department I'm a South Carolina girl through and through. Grew up in the Sand Hills of South Carolina, but uh, on a on a farm. So I love to run equipment and learned uh, the hard work ethic and and all about getting dirty and and um, to accomplish jobs at a young age. But spent a bunch of time on the coast as well, and I uh, really developed a passion for for birds and natural resources at an early age. Um, I ventured off to undergrad at Clemson and got a forestry degree, but somewhere along the way decided that. I uh, wanted to count things that moved, but uh, it took me a four-year degree to kind of figure that out. Uh, so after uh, after I finished my undergrad, I had a real unique opportunity to go and intern with a private nonprofit organization, Coastal South Carolina, called Nemours Wildlife Foundation. And um, through that uh, opportunity, really had a, a chance to get involved with waterfowl research, which led to me going to graduate school at Mississippi State to continue a project on breeding and brooder and ecology of model ducks in South Carolina. And so at Mississippi State, I worked with Dr. Brian Davis and Dr. Rick Kaminsky, which I know y'all talk about occasionally mm-hmm. on the podcast here. Yeah. So great opportunity to work with those guys. And then um, eventually made my way back to South Carolina, worked in a field position with SCDNR, um, kind of revamping um, a uh, waterfowl management area in a tidal region of South Carolina for a number of years. And then uh, 
progressed on to state waterfowl biologist. I've been in this position for about two years. So a lot of fun gives me an opportunity to do a lot of uh, day-to-day habitat consultation on public lands and with private landowners. I do a lot with the Atlantic Flyway Technical Section. Um, so I get really involved in uh, kind of the, the reg setting here in South Carolina, a lot of research as well. And so I wear a lot of different hats with my job. Um, but my favorite part is, is the part that, to be in the field. I like to I like to get my boots dirty every day and um, really just opportunity to manage habitat and, and, and do what we can for birds here in, in the South Atlantic. I appreciate that, Molly. I'm going to ask you to help me with the geography of South Carolina a little bit. You said that you grew up in the Sand Hills. Where, what part of the state is that? I don't have a lot of experience over there in, uh, in South Carolina. Yep. So Sand Hills, kind of right in the middle of the state, right near uh, right near the state capital of Columbia. Um, so really a, a drier portion of the state, somewhere where uh, ducks are a little more difficult to come by. But that was where I first got into waterfowl and wood ducks, and uh, really kind of made me fall in love with what we do in our day to day. Yeah. And so wood ducks are going to be a, a prominent part of, of kind of your experiences growing up and, and even now, I'm sure, in waterfowl hunting. And uh, I grew up in north central Mississippi, and it's a similar type of deal for me. Uh, matter of fact, a few weeks ago, or no, a few days ago, the opener for Mississippi uh, went on a wood duck shoot. And I've said wood ducks are probably my favorite species because, I mean, they're beautiful, charismatic, they're local, and they've saved many a hunt, many a duck season for me. I suspect you're the same way. Absolutely. I made my way out uh, this past weekend and hunting some public land. And, um, you know, the more that I, the more that I hunt, I really enjoy the simplicity of a wood duck hunt. Sometimes it's a lot of fun to get out and chase after those birds and um, really takes me back to what made me fall in love with waterfowl in the first place. So definitely uh, bread and butter for uh, waterfowl hunters here in South Carolina and myself as well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about a little bit, I, we had the video going here as we're recording and I was able to see in the background uh, all of the, the ribbons, orange ribbons, maybe some black ribbons. And I recognize those immediately uh, because I used to do a little bit of this, but I also follow you on social media. And so I know you are pretty big into dog training and and trials, field trials. I don't know if it's field trials or hunt test, but tell our listeners a little bit about that. You have a passion for dog training and, and competition or at least testing against uh, hunt standards. Absolutely. So yeah, I have, uh, I've got two dogs that I personally um, have hunted with, one that I continue to hunt now. And uh, when I made my way back to South Carolina, I really fell in love with the uh, AKC hunt test game. I've got a little little black lab female named Kate. She, uh, If you see me running around in my work truck, she's often with me and she hunts as well. But She's been really successful in the hunt test game. Really proud of her. She's got her master title, and we just uh, recently passed uh, our first master national attempt. So, um, really big accomplishment for her. So now we're ready to get out and uh, chase after some real birds. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, so that's uh, you. You do the training in kind of the off season. If I'm sure you were you were like like me whenever, whenever we had a lab that we that we put through the hunt test. It gave us the opportunity to train in the off season, kept us polished, kept us honed, all ultimately kind of leading up to that, that hunting season and making sure we've got a very effective uh, duck retriever and a, a great conservation tool helps find those wounded birds. And, and of course, just if you, if you love dogs, I mean, you just try to find as many things as possible to do with those, right? Absolutely. You know, a dog, a dog makes the hunt for me. And um, like you said, excellent conservation tools, you know, 
if I can't hunt with my dog, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna find something find something else to do. It just really makes the whole experience for me. But uh, if anybody's never had a chance to hunt over a real good dog, you know, it definitely definitely takes the experience to another level. So it, it sure does. I don't have a dog right now. We've been on a list for a while, and you know, but I travel a lot, and so I'm I am at that mentally conflicted stage of, you know, do I, do I take the leap? Do I not? Do I have the time? Of course, if you, if you take the leap, you'll find the time, you'll make the time. So anyway, I'm still kind of with that mentally conflicted state. Also, a lot of different variables run through my head whenever I'm trying to make that decision. And uh, so anyway, we'll see. My wife and I are continuing to talk about that. So stay tuned. Keep me posted. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it, Molly. Uh, I did want to kind of move on here real quick, talk about the, the main reason we wanted to have you on, which is to provide uh, a habitat update for South Carolina. Also, a little bit of a hunting update. Uh, let us know where y'all are in terms of the season. We're recording this episode in late November. It's actually November 29th for for people just to kind of give you that timestamp. Uh, but yeah, give us a, a habitat update and to the extent that you can, what have you been hearing in terms of hunting reports? Yeah, you know, we uh, checked uh, checked in with a number of uh, guys across the state here in the past couple of days to kind of compare what I was seeing versus what other guys are or kind of seeing on their hunts and you know generally across the state right now it's really dry but guys that that have water have been really successful here um during the first part of the season um like i said i got out myself and did some public land hunting uh this past saturday and got uh got into some wood ducks but you know just rivers are kind of low and so birds are kind of concentrated it seems if you're in them you know things are really well but uh, otherwise guys are really having to to work hard to kind of find water if they don't have permanent water available to them so but um you know we're optimistic we got some some rain coming our way this weekend and hopefully that'll improve our habitat conditions a little bit the guys have really good habitat on the ground and a lot of our uh plant and flood um properties at public and private um it's been a decent year for moist soil so i think we've got some good moist soil on the ground across the state and so uh pretty optimistic to see what happens when we get some more water on the landscape hopefully this this weekend molly for folks that may not be aware i could take a stab at this and i'm sure i could get close but hopefully you have this kind of off the top of your head uh, when we're talking about uh, duck species that make up let's say the top three to five species in the bag of south carolina hunters what are we looking at there absolutely wood ducks are first and foremost they make up about 60% of our bag here in South Carolina. It's probably pretty representative of, of the South Atlantic. Our number two bird in the bag is going to be a green wing teal. And then uh, follow that up with ringnecks and uh, blue wings have been coming really more uh, predominant here in the last five or 10 years um, in South Carolina. So Gadwall falls right there, rounding out the top five as well. Yeah. So, so- so this time of year, late November, because when did the hunting season start there in South Carolina? Pretty recent, right? Yeah, pretty pretty recent. We were open the week of Thanksgiving and we're closed for about two weeks before we'll open back up. Okay. So. Okay. So this time of year, if you're a hunter in South Carolina, what are you looking at weather-wise? Um, yeah, weather-wise, whether we're talking temperature, snow in northern latitudes or over into the into the Mississippi Flyway, northern portions of the Atlantic Flyway, what what do you look at? And in anticipation of the systems and the conditions that you get excited about if you're hunting in South Carolina. Yeah, absolutely. If you're uh, if you're on the coast, you know, we're really looking at calendar birds that are going to pass pass down the coastal region um, right now. If you're an inland guy, you know, you're kind of looking at some of this weather that's going on around the Great Lakes and even the Midwest right now. You know, we get a lot of our birds out of the uh, the PPR and um, from the Great Lakes area. So good front pushing birds this way. 
I heard some guys over the past two days talk about starting to pick up some mallards in our upstate midlands of South Carolina region. And uh, that really falls in line with, you know, typically timing wise for our inland guys when you start to see some mallards and some black ducks filter down. Um, and so it looks like we're right on right on schedule with average here. But, uh, you know, coastal has, has really been looking good and um, think that we've got a, a new push of pintails and some teal here in the past couple of days as well with some of these weather fronts that are pushing through. You know, we had a, we recorded a species profile episode the other day. I'm not sure which of these episodes is going to come out first. Probably this one if I had to guess. But we were talking about sort of the wintering distribution of pintails like current and then also a bit of a reference towards historical distributions and you know they're closely tied with rice agricultural landscapes mississippi alluvial valley gulf coast central valley but south carolina has a long history uh or if when you go back 150 years it has a rich history let me put it like that of rice production in in that coastal in those coastal uh, portions and matter of fact i think south carolina was probably the first place in the u.s where rice was produced you can correct me on that if i'm wrong but do you is there still some of that rice production there in South Carolina? And what can you tell me about any relationship uh, between any connection between pintails and having a strong uh, attraction to that particular geography in the state? And is it because of that? Um, maybe historically, was it because of those rice fields? Is there what's going on there now? Kind of fill in uh, fill in some of the story I'm trying to tell there. Yeah, yeah. So um, 17, 1800s was you know rice culture was booming in, in coastal South Carolina, even, you know, as far inland as, as Columbia, you know, the Midlands um, of the state, rice culture was was everywhere. If you had fresh water, people were growing rice. I mean, as up to 1860, South Carolina produced 90% of the nation's rice. So historically, you know, rice has been culturally very significant for the state. And as, as you know, largely historically, why we probably had as many waterfowl as we did. Currently, um, there are a number of people that are still planting rice, um, mostly for waterfowl. You'll see a little bit of rice grown on the coast, but, you know, a little bit more as you progress inland just because of um, ability to kind of grow rice in a mechanized type setting, you know, or coastal coastal marsh, uh, places where maybe historically rice may have been grown. It's just really, really soft and really difficult to grow rice in those areas anymore. Then you've got a kind of a, an increased salinity uh, regime going on in some of those areas. And so uh, some areas that maybe historically lent themselves to rice don't so much anymore. And so what we see in those old rice fields where we've got more of a salinity gradient now, you see more of a production of widgeon grass and dwarf spike rush. Um, and those pintails really like those areas too. Uh, I was actually looking at a group of a couple thousand pintails yesterday feeding widgeon grass. And so, uh, you know, if you've got these big kind of open uh, coastal marsh areas that are that are what we would call a managed tidal impoundment, you know, pintails can be pretty prolific in those areas. So they kind of hold hold close to the coast here in South Carolina. But occasionally you'll see a pintail pop up inland um, with a group of mallards, and and that's always a, a good surprise as well. Molly, we're going to take a break right now, and we're going to come back and pick up by talking about some of the other um some of the other well a couple of things i want to talk about one is sort of like talk about the management areas that you have across the state where there are waterfowl hunting opportunities and then also maybe a little bit about science research uh, waterfowl surveys if you're doing any of those uh, so stick with us folks we're going to come back we got a few more things to talk about with molly Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina ProPlan, after these messages. 
everybody, welcome back. We're here with Molly Neese, the state waterfowl biologist for South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. Uh, Molly, thanks for joining us here. And we're going to uh, just concluded like prior to the break talking about pintails and that historical rice culture. And I'm tempted to ask you a few other questions, but I'm not going to. We'll save that for a, a future discussion. That is, I think, a part of, of our waterfowling history and waterfowl habitat history that not a lot of people are aware of in terms of South Carolina leading the nation for a number of years in rice production and it being a a, a big reason why that state, those regions uh, traditionally supported way more birds than, um, than probably what we're seeing of certain species there now. Uh, the decline of that rice agriculture there is a story as well. We'll come back to that at some point with you on, on a future episode. But, but right now I want to give you an opportunity to talk about the different waterfowl hunting opportunities on your state-owned public lands in South Carolina that that, that uh, your hunters in your state have access to. Absolutely. So, yeah, waterfowl hunting is extremely popular in South Carolina um, on public lands and on private lands. There's a lot of private landowners that, that really put a lot of time and a lot of effort into their habitats, and public land definitely complements that. South Carolina DNR has about 25,000 acres that we really intensively manage for waterfowl um, across the landscape. Of that 25,000 acres, it's part of what we call our Category 1 or our lottery hunt system. Um, so that's a system where you know, hunters apply. They may accumulate preference points to hunt, hunt on various WMAs. But um, these are all you know hunts where we're, you're really looking for a quality bag and just an excellent opportunity. Um, and for a lot of a lot of folks, myself included, you know, it's that opportunity to harvest a model duck or a pintail. Just where you know maybe maybe your day to day hunts maybe don't provide those opportunities. And so you're looking at habitat that's. Um, Brackish uh, managed tidal impoundments, you know, where we're really promoting widgeon grass, dwarf spike rush, um, and other uh, other kind of salinity type species there. And you've got good moist soil areas, and we've also got some plant and flood that's uh, that's mixed in in that 25,000 acres. And so, in addition to that, um, South Carolina has a lot of public land that's in um, our WMA system. Some of it is national forest land. Some of it is other named WMAs where hunters have the opportunity to go in on certain days throughout the week and uh, and hunt there, you know, scout and uh, and hunt on their own. You don't have to be drawn. It's kind of first come, first serve. And those are some places where uh, you're kind of limited in the days that you can hunt so we can provide birds some refuge in certain places um, throughout the state. But in addition to that, you know, South Carolina has a, uh, a multitude of of tidal creeks and rivers and other places that are, are public waterways that hunters can go uh, during the season and and uh, and scout and hunt birds as they please. So lots of opportunity. Takes a lot of footwork here in South Carolina. Yeah, it's really popular and a lot of folks really look forward to water se- waterfowl season as, as, as much as I do. So it's uh, always a lot of fun to, to get to this time of year and and you know really see what our habitats can can provide with with some help from the weather. So most of that waterfowl habitat and waterfowl hunting opportunity on public land is near to the coast, right? But you do have places and management areas, let's say in the central part of the state. How far west would people be able to find opportunities to to hunt waterfowl? 
Yep. You can find a uh, part of our, um, you know, just kind of go and hunt as you please or part of our lottery hunt system all the way to the northwest corner of the state. We really, we really scatter from, from the, the sea to the foothills. And so, um, yeah, hopefully that's something that we can continue to expand and provide quality opportunities uh, as, as the years come. Good deal. And I also wanted to ask you about any type of waterfowl survey that y'all might conduct. I, I know there's been some research uh, conducted there a few years ago. Dr. Rick Kaminsky was involved in some of that. Uh, Nick Masto was, I think, the, the master student involved in some of that survey work. What's the status of any of those surveys? Are y'all still doing those? What's the timing of them? What can you tell me about that? Yep. So we have just this year decided to kind of transition to a um, what uh, what the Fish and Wildlife Service, Dr. Heath Hagee, is calling a modified aerial survey approach where uh, they're flying during the, the typical midwinter period and kind of integrating that survey data with uh, kind of migration curve data out of eBird or maybe consistent counts that are being conducted from the ground throughout the season on specific WMAs. So taking a little different approach from uh, from what uh, Nick Masto and, and Dr. Rick Kaminsky did here a number of years ago, but partnering with Fish and Wildlife Service again and Dr. Heath Hagee to kind of reinitiate um, aerial surveys on our coastal WMAs here this coming season. So pretty excited about that. And uh, we're kind of coupling that too with some um, habitat assessment data um, that we gathered this fall. Both of these will be used um, in the in the in the years to come. So assessing habitat and coupling that with uh, aerial survey data. So pretty uh, pretty exciting stuff coming back to South Carolina. Yeah, that is cool. I do want to ask you a little bit more about that because people may wonder sometimes, like, well, what are what all do we do with the survey data? Some of this there's a variety of states that can conduct these surveys, whether they be ground-based surveys or aerial surveys. One of the reasons that some of these states conduct those surveys is to provide a communication, point of communication to a very important constituent, that being waterfowl hunters, wanting to know what uh, what they're seeing in terms of the number of waterfowl across different parts of the state and how do numbers and estimates in a given year compare to historical trends. So, it's, 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 sort of satisfying an interest of a core constituent and but those data oftentimes can inform other um, other studies other analyses that folks like yourself and your agency uh, use to to evaluate things that you're doing or to keep track of of I guess trends in waterfowl populations and so talk a little bit about that what is it like if you're talking to some of your constituents what is it that you're telling them that you're doing with that data why is it important absolutely you know uh you know hunters are always interested in the surveys you know as to where where birds are and hunting in certain areas and so as a scientist from this position you know i'm really interested in in trends you know or are birds kind of starting to shift further north up the coast or you know or we may be losing some of our coastal birds to more uh inland habitats that have have arisen here in, in recent years and so really studying those trend data also looking at you know what habitat specifically these birds are using. So as we approach um, habitat work and securing grants for um, revamping uh, uh, managed areas or maybe securing new managed areas, you know, what habitats these birds seem to be using that are important to them. 
Um, you know, those trends can can be really important for uh, from a policy perspective and also, you know, just from a land management perspective as a state agency. You know, there's a lot of good trend data that comes along with those surveys. So, you know, we're really using this habitat data too to really, uh, you know, take a hard look at, at what's on the landscape and and how many uh, how many duck energy days we're providing here for birds in South Carolina to really make sure that, you know, with the number of birds that winter here, you know, are we doing our part to make sure that we've got enough food on the ground to send uh, healthy birds back north in the spring for uh, hopefully a, a fruitful fall flight the following season. So Thank you for that, Molly. And, and that kind of provides a nice transition to the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is research and science interest of the department. Uh, I know I know model ducks is a, is a, it's a species that has been of interest to South Carolina DNR for a number of years. I know in the past y'all had conducted some research on, on that species. Uh, I think you told me that much of that has wound down, and so you're now kind of shifting some of your attention to some other priorities. Talk about some of those. What's on the science and research agenda for uh, SCDNR? Absolutely. So, yeah, in recent years, we've kind of wound down our model duck research, but, uh, you know, I mentioned that 60% of our our harvest here in South Carolina is wood duck. So it's an extremely important species um, for us here in South Carolina and across the Southeast. So in the early 1980s, South Carolina established a free wood duck box program um, for uh, for the constituents of the state. People can apply and, and receive a number of, uh, of wood duck boxes every year. And so uh, since the early 1980s, we've really, we've distributed about 55,000 wood duck boxes across the state. A number of those are really maintained and monitored very well every year. And so had a lot of questions just related to wood ducks and recruitment from those boxes. And so a number of state agencies came together about five or six years ago with Nemours Wildlife Foundation that I mentioned previously and decided that we really wanted to pursue a wood duck recruitment um, study based on boxes across the Southeast. And so um, we're wrapped up the last year of data collection for that study. And we're really excited to kind of see what recruitment looks like out of that data. So, you know, of a female wood duck that's hatched in a box, you know, does she return the following year? And if she does, what is her contribution to the population? So, um, that's something that we're we're getting into the latter stages of here. We're also involved with uh, the big Atlantic Flyway Eastern Mallard Research Project. Um, we're kind of you know at the southern range of of mallards um, in the Atlantic Flyway here in South Carolina. You know we get some birds out of eastern Canada, some birds out of the Finger Lakes of New York, but a lot of our birds come out of the Great Lakes region as far as mallards are concerned. And so um, we've joined in that effort and they're trying to get out a number of transmitters here each year. It's also a pretty unique effort in South Carolina. We had a number of private landowners really interested in the study and um, have really, really supported that effort just from providing trapping access and contributing money for, uh, for additional transmitters. And so really excited to kind of see um, what mallards that winter in South Carolina, you know, what they're doing on the long term and what their production is. I'm looking at uh, wintering site fidelity here in South Carolina. And then I know our, our private landowners are really interested in uh, in breeding site fidelity. So a lot of interesting things going on there we're actively involved in. And then uh, looking down the road, you know, I'm really interested in 
related to these aerial surveys, um, looking at some some winter habitat use for birds, not just on the coast, but really across the state of South Carolina. You know, you get further inland, you know, our beaver swamps become really important for our inland hunters. And, and there's a number of honey holes of, uh, of wood ducks and uh, mallards and the occasional black duck. So I'm really interested in uh, kind of some habitat connectivity and habitat use of, of what's going on with birds on the coast, but also uh, really across the state. So hopefully we can pull a big uh, habitat use project um, together here uh, a few years down the road. It sounds like you got a fair number of exciting things on your plate. Uh, how many other people do you have kind of working with you on on some of those things and, and how does that work? Uh, how does that work get done? Are you partnering with some universities on that? What's it looking like for y'all there? I absolutely, you know, pursuing these big research projects, there's always a um, a network of people. We work closely with Clemson University. We've got great relationships with Mississippi State as well. Fish and Wildlife Service, like I said, Nemours Wildlife Foundation is a big supporter of waterfowl research here in South Carolina, and they've been a great partner of the agency here for, for almost 20 years, um, if not more. And so um, all of these projects really uh, bring in all of those partners, um, Ducks Unlimited is also a great supporter of all our research here in South Carolina. So, you know, all these things, uh, they don't happen in a vacuum. So, uh, they definitely happen with with the help of a lot of people. Um, I've got a network of about 40 staff or 40 to 50 DNR staff that um, do something related to habitat management or banding or um, really anything waterfowl related here in South Carolina. So, when it comes to really... Uh, deploy and research projects across the state. You know, I've got a, a vast network of um, DNR staff that really chip in and like to contribute as well. Yeah, that, that's all great. And it doesn't really surprise me to hear you say how much energy and enthusiasm there is uh, behind really every aspect of what we've discussed, whether it be habitat management, research, and support for that research, and providing access to researchers on, on private land. Uh, we talk a lot about how hunters are are, are some of the largest supporters of conservation through the financial contributions that they make, but they also support this this community and this enterprise in so many other ways. And we're increasingly seeing uh, private landowners, waterfowl hunters wanting to get involved and wanting to contribute to some of the ongoing science that we're doing, whether it's just through providing access to the properties or whether it be helping to fund some of the research or collect some of the data in some of the new citizen science projects that are ongoing out there. That's another thing that we um, we try to talk about. We probably don't say enough about it. And, and it's, it's kind of, I think we underestimate how much actually goes on. And that's in in addition to all the historical contributions from band recoveries and participation in, in harvest surveys and um, South Carolina is a stronghold for waterfowl hunting there in the southern portion of the Atlantic Flyway. There's a good culture of waterfowl hunting all throughout the Atlantic Flyway, make no mistake. Um, but we're particularly proud of, of the work that we're, we've done there in the Ace Basin and collaborated with y'all and researchers at, at, at Clemson and, and elsewhere to help study some of those important, uh, those important landscapes. So it's great to bring a little bit more voice to that work. I appreciate you being part of that here, Molly. Anything else that you wanted to talk about relative to where we are in the season? Anything else that's going on within your agency uh, uh, before we close out? Hey, you know, we're just really optimistic and looking forward to what the last uh, the last 50 days of the season here holds for us in South Carolina. So we've got a lot of uh, new uh 
or I say new, a lot of recent big renovation projects, uh, properties coming back online. So we're excited to see those and to really see um, that beneficial habitat, you know, provide provide for waterfowl here in South Carolina and also provide opportunity for our public land hunters. So um, a lot of that is, is NACA grants and coastal wetland grants, stuff that big projects, we work closely with uh, the South Atlantic field office here um, with. And so I know we're all excited to see, uh, see what comes out of those recently renovated areas, but, you know, just looking forward to what's to come. Appreciate that, Molly. We will, we'll keep an eye on the calendar. We'll keep an eye on weather conditions and I'll check in with you periodically and we'll try to get you back on an episode sometime in January. Not really sure what all that will look like. We might try. We're always experimenting with new ideas, whether those those new ideas actually get implemented. Uh, that's that's kind of, that kind of depends on how many how, how many other things we have going, uh, you know, and whether we can fit them in. But it would, it would be good to reconnect with you at some point, just kind of get a recap of how the season went. Hopefully, you'll get some uh, some ideal weather systems to move some birds into that part of the flyway and give people a, a good chance at them. I've, I've seen mixed reports from from up and down the Atlantic Flyway. And I think your your st- earlier statement at this point is that if, if you've got water in much of the, the southern, southeastern portion of the U.S., you're, in, you're set up to do pretty well because it is so dry in so many places. We need a lot of rain. Uh, we need a lot of rain just to kind of get out of drought status. Uh, I think the fear would be that we would get too much rain. It would spread the birds out and and then uh, tilt things in the, in the other directions. But every year is different. It varies from region to region. We'll just work with whatever, whatever mother nature gives us. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah. Just, just the right amount of rain. Not too much. Yeah. Not too much. That's right. That's right. We'll dial that up. Well, all right, Molly, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to catching up with you sometime uh, in the future. All right. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Molly Neese, the state waterfowl biologist for South Carolina DNR. We appreciate her coming on, being a first-time guest. It won't be the last time we hear from Molly. She provides great insight and and, uh, information from uh, the South Atlantic. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the terrific job he does with these episodes. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your time. We thank you for your support of Wetlands and Waterfowl Conservation, and we encourage you to make other friends, make your other hunting partners aware of the the Ducks Unlimited podcast, and help us spread the word of all things waterfowl that we bring to you here on this platform. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned.